In July 1994, astronomers were treated to a spectacle in the skies, a cosmic demolition derby. Twenty chunks of a shattered comet named Shoemaker-Levy 9 smashed into the planet Jupiter. Massive hunks of ice and rock hit the Jovian atmosphere at 134 miles per hour. It created a deep impact. When fragment G hit, the planet released a fireball, a gaseous plume, 5,000 miles wide by 1,600 miles high. The force of the explosion was equivalent to 6 million megatons of TNT. That's 100,000 times the power of the largest nuclear bomb ever detonated on planet Earth. Glenn Orton, an astronomer at the California Jet Propulsion Laboratory, he made this comment. It was like God striking the planet. Indeed. Of course, the fireworks on Jupiter stirred up speculation here on Earth. Could a similar cosmic debris smash into our planet? And the answer is a definite yes. In fact, not only can it, the phenomena occurs every day. Did you know the Earth gets sprinkled with over 20 tons of cosmic rock every day. Most of the 20 tons of space dust are about the size of a grain of sand. You really do have stardust in your hair, you just don't know it. But scientists have evidence of larger strikes. Geologists have documented 140 craters in different places all around the globe. These are the results of incoming asteroids and comets and meteors. In 1908, a comet exploded in a remote region of Siberia. In 1993, a tractor-trailer-sized asteroid passed 90,000 miles from the Earth. That's less than half the distance of, between the Earth and the moon. By astronomical standards, that's called a close call. According to CBS News, astronomers estimate that there are over 400,000 near-Earth objects or NEOs, up to a thousand meters wide that could strike the earth with little or no warning. It may surprise you, but the Bible predicts that one day God is going to judge this earth by striking this perverse planet with an extraterrestrial projectile. Revelation chapter 8 describes the fireworks that will one day be a reality. John writes, Something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And the name of the star is Wormwood, or bitterness. And a third of the waters became bitter, and many men died from the water. And I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe. Not ho, ho, ho. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. As Glenn Orton put it, it was like God striking the planet. Here's what no one today wants to say or will admit. God sees mankind's sin and rebellion. 
He sees this world's blatant disregard for His Word. God sees mankind's snotty arrogance and our militant secularism and our shameless perversions. And trust me, God is not going to sit by silent forever. A day of reckoning is on the horizon. It is almost high noon at the OK Corral. God will shake the pillars of the universe to get our attention. He is going to one day bring the arrogant planet to its knees. Years ago, I read where Ladbrokes, a London bookmaker, was giving 40 to 1 odds that an alien will visit our planet in the near future. At the time, if a visitor had dropped in, it would have cost Ladbrokes about a half a million dollars. Well, the truth of the matter is, is that one day they'll have to pay up. For the earth is about to be invaded by an extraterrestrial visitor. And his name is Jesus Christ. There are more biblical passages that promise Jesus' second coming than promised his first. Someone has added up 2,100 references. You see, currently, we live in an age where mankind is getting his way. Where man is having his say. Today is called the day of man. Man rules the roost. Yet the Bible says that the sun is going to set on the day of man. And a new day will dawn on the earth. A time where God will have His say. God will get His way in the affairs of men. God will shut up the opinions of men. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, is coming back to clean house. He'll judge evildoers. He'll right all wrongs. He'll return to establish His kingdom. This is what this morning's text discusses. Paul refers to this period as the day of the Lord. I've told this story before, but it bears repeating. My dad's here, so he can vouch for me. Whenever my dad taught fifth grade Sunday school to fifth grade boys, he always had an interesting way to ease into his lesson. Before he commenced, he would open the floor. He would take the podium and he'd say, Okay, boys, we can talk about whatever you want. We'll talk about girls or sports. Whatever you want to talk about, we'll talk about. I'll just sit right here and I'll let you guys talk. Of course, when given the opportunity to talk, boys don't want to talk. They only want to talk when you tell them not to talk. And so it didn't take long to end the discussion. Then dad would come back and he'd open his Bible and he'd say, All right, I've given you young men an opportunity to talk about what you wanted to talk about. And I've sat respectfully and listened to you. Now I'm going to talk and you're going to sit respectfully and listen to me. Very effective. But this is what God is going to say to this world at the end of the age. Today he's sitting back listening to our foolishness and our blasphemy. But the day is coming when it's going to be his turn. Trust me, God will get the last word. You see, Paul begins these discussions on the day of the Lord in verse 1. He says, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Understand, when we talk about the day of the Lord, we're not defining a 24-hour period. 
In history, we often speak of the day of Rome's Republic or the day of the Industrial Revolution or the day of space exploration. Rome was a republic for 500 years, not just for 24 hours. In this sense, the term day can speak of an indefinite period of time. This is what we're talking about with the day of the Lord. The bookends for this period of time are the rapture of the church at the start and the new heaven and the new earth as the grand finale. And in between, much happens. There's the marriage supper of the Lamb, the rise of the Antichrist, seven years of great tribulation, the battle of Armageddon, the coming of Christ in power and great glory, the salvation of Israel, the judgment of the nations, the millennial reign of Christ, the battle with Magog, even a universal inferno, the great white throne of judgment is also included in this period. These proceedings cover a time frame of more than a thousand years. But here in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul is concerned with the onset of these events, the beginning of the day of the Lord. You see, he wants his church ready for the miracle that's described at the end of chapter 4, the rapture of the church. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we which are alive and remain will be caught up with Jesus in the clouds. That's the beginning of the day of the Lord. Jesus is going to snatch up his church, and he wants us living our lives in anticipation of his return. Now, after all my criticism last week of Harold Camping and his erroneous date setting, this week, God actually revealed to me the exact time of the rapture. That's right. I know this for sure. It's, 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 it's a given. Jesus is going to return to this earth at 2 o'clock in the morning. Just write it down. Put it in ink. At 2 o'clock in the morning. Somewhere on the earth, it's going to be 2 o'clock in the morning when Jesus returns. I know for sure. Actually, we learned last week that Jesus himself said no one knows the exact moment of the rapture. In Mark 13, verse 32, Jesus said, But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. You see, no one knows the exact day or the specific hour. But here in verse 1, notice Paul tells us that we should know the times and the seasons. I'll never forget the Sunday morning that Kathy gave birth to Zach. She was nine months pregnant, great with child. I mean great with child. She resembled one of those hot air balloons in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. My skinny little wife had to be tied down with ropes to keep from floating off. Hey, it was obvious that my wife was about to have a baby, and sooner rather than later. But that Sunday morning, her water broke. And I'll never forget it. It was like, oh my, it's going to happen. We're going to have a baby. Probably surprised me more than it surprised her, but. We knew the day was coming. Why? How could, we, how could we not know? She had had her backpack for weeks. But when the moment arrived, it shocked us both. And here's how Paul tells us the day of the Lord will begin. As labor pains upon a pregnant woman. You know it's on the horizon. You can tell the times and the seasons. But when the event actually occurs, it's going to be a shocker. See, the Bible is full of signposts that indicate 
that we're nearing the last days. For starters, there's the rebirth of the nation Israel. Did you know this is an unprecedented event in the annals of human history? A people in exile, a people that hadn't been a people, that hadn't been a nation for 1,900 years is suddenly reborn. A desert has now bloomed. A language has been revived. A dead language is now spoken on the streets in Jerusalem. You see, the modern Israeli people are proof of God's faithfulness. Reminds me of the pagan king of Prussia. He once asked the missionary, Count Zinzendorf, he says, can you prove to me your faith? Zinzendorf replied with two words, the Jew. We could go on and on noting the signs. The Zionist movement to relocate Jews to Israel was all prophesied in Scripture. Plans to rebuild a Jewish temple. The Israeli-Arab peace process that's currently happening. The reunification of Europe. Unrest with Persia, a.k.a. Iran. An intensifying momentum around the world for global government and a one-world economy. A preponderance of earthquakes and disease and famine and natural disasters. Even a proliferation of knowledge and technology. I can take you to chapter and verse and show you these Bible prophecies that are being fulfilled before our very eyes. And these are just a few of the phenomena that will signal the end. Canvas today's news and you will recognize the times and the seasons. Besides, if Jesus doesn't return soon, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, this world is growing more and more wicked by the day. More and more perverse. If God doesn't intervene soon, we'll annihilate ourselves This world is so pregnant with judgment, she's about to pop. And according to Paul, when the day of the Lord begins, it will come like a mom's initial contractions. It'll start suddenly. Jesus will descend in the clouds to snatch away His church. Even though we know He's coming, it's still a surprise. The day comes as a thief in the night. It happens unexpectedly. See, a burglar doesn't make an appointment, does he? He doesn't send out a notice a few days in advance before the heist. He waits until you least expect him, and then he pounces. This is why you need to be a rapture watcher. We see these end-time scenarios like a storm brewing and forming off in the distance, but the first thunderclap is going to be the rapture. Paul encourages us to be ready. But notice what follows. As the believers go up, judgment comes down. Read again verse 2. When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. Did you know this world is barreling toward judgment? We're all dancing and carrying on and having a good time and parting away while the world itself is barreling toward judgment. And notice a pseudo-peace precedes this sudden judgment. I mean, before the ink dries on the paper, peace treaties will be broken and Israel attacked. On September the 29th, 1938, Great Britain signed a treaty with Germany. Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, he gave Adolf Hitler a slice of land from his neighbor Czechoslovakia. In exchange, Hitler promised no more aggression. The British press hailed the agreement as peace in our time. They were seriously duped, weren't they? 
I mean, six months later, Hitler had taken over all of Czechoslovakia. In less than a year, the Nazis were marching on Poland. You see, one day, Israel will strike a similar agreement. They'll be charmed by the promise of shalom or peace. Another dynamic leader, much like Hitler, the Bible calls him the Antichrist, will smooth talk the Jews into the treaty table. But their partner in this peace will have evil motives. They will enter a sinister shalom. You see, the Bible has much to say about this future peace treaty. Isaiah 28 verse 18 calls it a covenant with death and your agreement with hell. Daniel speaks of a future leader who rises up against God. Chapter 8, verse 25 tells us, Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper. Daniel 9, verse 27 even pinpoints this peace treaty on the timeline. Notice Paul warns, When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction. There's another passage in Acts chapter 17 where Paul spoke of God's patience, his patience with the world. Paul said, these times of ignorance God overlooked. In other words, God winked at sin for a time. He blinked. Not because he approves of what he sees, not because he's afraid to judge sinners, but it just wasn't time. Daniel 9 tells us that God has set aside a future seven-year period to judge this rebel planet. He has reserved the harshest judgments for the end of the age. The Bible even has a name for this period of time. It calls it the Great Tribulation. You see, today the world persecutes the church, but in that day, God is going to pour out His wrath on this world. He's going to take the wicked to the woodshed. Terrible, fearful judgments will rock the third rock. They'll make the Chernobyl meltdown and the Japanese tsunami and the Haitian earthquake look like child's play. At the moment, man is riding a high horse. But he's going to get shot down. Soon, God will intervene. You see, Revelation teaches us that the title deed to this earth is sealed with seven seals. And when Jesus takes possession of that title... He'll pop those seals, and in response, seven judgments will be poured out upon the earth. Seven trumpets will pour out more punishment. Seven bowls will pour out still more. The Bible says that people will run for cover in that day. They'll try to commit suicide to escape, but God won't allow it. Expect a full-scale assault on sinners. You see, God will knock man off his high horse and Jesus will return with his saints on a white horse. This isn't metaphor or symbolism or sci-fi. This is the Bible's prophetic forecast for a future seven years on planet earth. It will be great tribulation. And Daniel 9 verse 27 gives us the benchmark on the timeline. We're told when these seven years begin... It happens, they begin, when Israel signs this false peace, this sinister shalom. When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction. Now understand, the day of the Lord begins before the signing of this peace treaty. It begins with the rapture. 
Jesus comes as a thief, unexpectedly for his church. But then the world is lulled to sleep by this false peace. Everyone thinks, oh, better days are ahead. Good riddance to all those Christians. But halfway through those seven years, Israel's treaty gets broken. And God takes vengeance on a world who betrays his people. He ramps up his judgments. Finally, Jesus returns to save Israel and establish his kingdom. And before we go further, let me clear up some possible confusion. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Jesus returns before this sudden destruction. He comes in the clouds. He comes to snatch up the church to heaven and deliver us from this coming wrath. But there are other Bible passages that teach that Jesus will return at the end of these judgments to rescue the Jews and punish his enemies and establish his kingdom on the earth, that he'll reign and rule for a thousand years. That means that there are actually two second comings of Christ. One is before the destruction. He comes in the clouds for the church. The world struggles for an explanation. But the other coming is after the destruction. He comes to the earth to rescue his people Israel, and the world recognizes that it's Jesus. Of course, there are folks who see only one second coming. That Jesus will rapture his church and rebuild his kingdom at the same time. They believe the church will have to endure God's fierce judgments, that we'll have to go through this great tribulation. Not so. This is not what Paul teaches us throughout 1 Thessalonians. Recall chapter 1, verse 10. There he commends the believers for turning from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, notice, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We aren't destined for God's wrath. We've promised to be delivered from God's wrath. The Thessalonians were taking it on the chin from the world around them. Jesus promises to come to deliver them from the wrath to come. Certainly, God uses tribulation as a means of our discipleship. Often, the opposition we face is what builds endurance in our lives and purifies our faith. Yes, we are subject to the world's animosity toward the church, but that is a far cry from being subject to God's animosity toward this world. You remember Lot was escorted out of Sodom just before the judgment came down. And likewise, the church will be delivered just before sudden destruction comes upon this world. Paul says it again here in verse 9 of chapter 5. He says, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you know Jesus, the great tribulation is not in your future. We are saved from wrath to salvation. And this idea is not only taught in 1 Thessalonians, but elsewhere in Scripture. In Revelation 3, verse 10, Jesus promises the faithful church, He says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. They'll be kept from this global tribulation that's to come. They'll be spared. In contrast, Jesus says to the unfaithful church, I will cast her into a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Her punishment 
is the great tribulation, but implied is that the church was never intended for God's end time judgments. In fact, there's an obscure prophecy in Isaiah chapter 26. I believe it's an invitation to the church to be ready for the rapture. Isaiah writes, Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. That's the snatching away. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment. That's those seven years. Until the indignation, that's the great tribulation, is passed. For behold, the Lord comes out of His place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. Here's the beauty of our salvation. It's so multifaceted. We're saved from sin, but we're also saved from the law. And we're saved from judgment. And we're saved from this world. And we're saved from hell. And we're also saved from the wrath to come. Notice, too, the last line in verse 3. They shall not escape. Paul is saying the folks who are duped into accepting this false peace, who end up suffering sudden destruction, shall not escape. But Paul's implication is that some will. That's why he's writing to the Thessalonians. God provides His church a great escape. That's why we need to discern the seasons and stay rapture ready. We need to always be listening for the shout, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God because very soon we're going to be caught up to be with Jesus. The next prophetic event on the timeline is the rapture of the church. Nothing else needs to happen before Jesus calls us home. It's the next benchmark in God's plan. The day of the Lord begins with the rapture. See, the Bible teaches what theologians call the doctrine of of imminency, that Jesus can return for His church, that it's imminent, that it can happen at any moment. This is why I believe in what's called the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. You see, if the rapture occurs, if the rapture occurs before the great tribulation, then it can be imminent. It can happen at any moment. But if it occurs after the great tribulation, then you, you can count off the seven years. You'll know when it's going to happen. We'll be able to chart it out to the very day. Harold Camping will be back in business. God forbid. That's why I'm not looking for judgment. I'm looking for Jesus. And this is why Paul stirs us up in verse 4. He says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. A believer in Jesus isn't in the dark in these matters. Did you know the means by which you became a Christian should have introduced you to certain truths about God? I mean, the instant you're saved, you're ushered into the light. You wake up to the day. When you're saved, you learn that Jesus is all about deliverance. You learn that grace is all about escaping wrath. You learn that faith is all about not being overtaken. You should know better than to think that you're destined for judgment. Jesus provides a great escape. Paul continues, We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. In chapter 4, we talked about the believers who died. Their souls live with Jesus, but their body stays asleep in the grave waiting for the resurrection. This sleep, word sleep implies a restful, peaceful state. But the word sleep here in verse 6 is a different word. It implies a deadening of the senses. You know, the dictionary definition reads, to yield to sloth and sin. 
to be indifferent to your salvation. This is the guy who just slumbers his life away. He's dead to the things of God. He's oblivious to eternal values. The word sleep implies three traits. First, insensitive. You're insensitive to what's going on around you when you're asleep. You'd be insensitive to God and to His Word if you're asleep in this sense. Sleep also implies inactivity. You don't do anything while you're asleep, do you? You're not serving. You're not doing things for God. Sleep also implies being in danger. A man who's asleep is defenseless and vulnerable to attack. This is what happens when we fall asleep spiritually. And I'm afraid some of us have dozed off to the things of God. This morning, I'm trying to shake you. I want to wake you. I hope that this Bible study is a strong cup of coffee. Once there was a little boy, he he went to say his bedtime prayers, and he got tongue-tied. Rather than his normal prayer, if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. He prayed, if I should wake before I die. But that's what we should be praying all the time. That's what we should be praying for our friends. That's what we should be praying for our family members. That they wake up spiritually before life on earth is over for them. You see, it's so easy to discuss God's final judgments when we do it in the abstract. When we talk about the wicked world out there. But when we put a face on it. Uncle Bob. Or Jim next door. Or cousin Karen. It's a different story, isn't it? But everyone alive at the time who doesn't know Jesus is going to be subject to these terrible judgments. This is why those of us who are sober need to love our friends enough to wake them up before their time is up. Years ago, I had a case of bad indigestion. I mistook it for chest pains. It concerned me, and so I decided to take no chances and and go and let the doctor check it out. I suppose this doctor went to college. He's a doctor. Probably did some graduate work. Maybe even went to medical school. But you wouldn't know it by what he told me. I'll never forget. He, he said to me, he said, well, it's a good thing that you came in today. A lot of people, you know, ignore these signs. They just go to bed. And in the morning, they wake up dead. No joke. An educated man told me they wake up dead. I immediately asked to see his diploma. No, I didn't, but should have. But the doc must have been speaking spiritually. For in a spiritual sense, everyone will wake up after they're dead. In eternity, you'll be fully awake. You'll be fully aware. You'll see clearly God's truths and your need for Jesus. But then, my friend, it'll be too late. You'll be dead. It's too late. Your opportunities are over. You see, the idea is to wake up before you die, not afterwards. Notice verse 7. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. You ever heard the expression, nothing good happens after midnight? I've been singing that refrain to my kids for the last 20 years. Nothing good happens after midnight. And it's true. Did you know that 62% of sex crimes, 71% of car thefts happen at night? Evil people like to operate under the cover of darkness. And the same is true spiritually. You know, if you're sin in your heart, you'll run from God's light and God's truth. You'll seek out the darkness. You'll avoid church and fellowship every chance you get. 
any excuse will become a good excuse. You'll do all you can to stay as far from God's light as possible. We need to wake up and embrace the light. You know, Paul says, but let us who are of the day be sober. I'm thinking of the guy who gets drunk one night, I mean gets really tanked. He's suffering this major league hangover. It's past noon now. He's still in bed. He's got the curtains closed tight. But Paul, he bursts into the room. He throws open the curtains. He lets the daylight just pour in and soak up the room. He starts shaking his friend. He even starts the IV coffee drip. I mean, Paul is sobering up his friend. And this is what Paul wants to do to us. Have you been wasting your time drunk, indulging in sin, drunk to the things of God, asleep to the things of God? Paul's saying it's time to wake up and get up and wise up and look up. It's time to join the day in the light of God's Word. Hey, your life will be better if you live it sober. That's true literally and figuratively. We want to sober up to God. And once Paul gets his bud off the bud and out of the bed, it gets him dressed. Paul finds him, and he puts some proper attire on him, on his heart and on his head. Notice he tells us, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. A breastplate and a helmet. That's what you need. You see, a breastplate protects our heart. Protects our heart. You know, a cop never goes into a dangerous situation without a bulletproof vest. And neither should a Christian go anywhere without the breastplate of faith and love. We too need to protect our heart. You know, in the Bible, the heart is the seat of the desires. You know, if you really desire a thing, you want it with all your heart. That's why we should be careful about what we want. We should be careful about who we love and what we believe in. Our heart follows the priorities that we set. You know, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart will follow your treasure. Understand this. so important. The heart is a follower. Your heart is a follower. You know, people who talk about following their heart, they've got it backwards. You follow your heart, you'll end up crushed and confused and disappointed. Following your heart is letting the tail wag the dog. You'll end up jerked around and played the fool. You need to tie your faith, your heart, to love and faith. You know, it astonishes me to hear someone give their life philosophy. Oh, I just follow my heart. I'm sorry, I know where that's going to lead you. Down a dead-end path. People don't realize that our heart attaches to what we love and to what we believe. Rather than lead us, the heart tags along behind what we think is important. That's why when you establish good priorities, then you can let your heart follow. This is why we need to wake up. We need to sober up. We need to decide what is true. We need to choose who we're going to love and be committed to. And then we need to get our heart in line. Our heart needs to follow, not lead. Cover your heart with faith and love. And then use as a helmet the hope of salvation. Make sure your mind continually thinks salvation thoughts. I'll never forget being challenged by a quote that I heard used in reference to C.S. Lewis. Someone described him 
as the most thoroughly converted man he had ever met. This is what I want to be. Thoroughly converted. I want to be thoroughly Christian. I want to see myself in Christ. I want to view life from God's perspective. I want to see you through God's eyes. I want to look at all of life from a biblical point of view, from a godly point of view. I need to believe that I can change. I need to believe that. You see, I need a case of salvation on the brain. That's just what I need. Salvation on the brain. One year, Zach was the catcher on his baseball team, and they just come out with those new hockey-style catcher's masks. You know what I'm talking about? It was the latest and greatest thing, so I went down to the store to pick one up for him for a Christmas gift. And I still remember the sticker shot, man. $189 for a catcher's mask. I thought, I want to buy this kid some more Christmas gifts over the next 10, 15 years. I better not buy this. I better save my money. Wow. I figured the old catcher's mask would do. You know, I'm afraid, though, that's the choice that many Christians have made. Rather than think new thoughts, rather than let their salvation color their thinking, they just continue in the same old ruts, the same old thought patterns. I'm sure you've heard it before. I think it was Albert Einstein who coined this definition for insanity. Insanity is expecting the same thing done the same way to yield a different result. We need a new mindset. We need to put on the helmet of salvation. Here's the good news. Even though head protection is expensive, it's free. Spiritual head protection. The helmet of salvation was purchased by the blood of Jesus. Salvation and all its ramifications is free. All we got to do is strap it on. But have you done that? A catcher would never think of entering the game without a face mask. And you and I will never be victorious Christians without our helmet. Are you learning to think about yourself and others and life from a different angle? From God's perspective? Keep your helmet on. Notice verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. How hopeful that is. Whether our bodies wake or they sleep. In essence, dead or alive, our goal is the same. To live with Jesus. This is the believer's destiny. On earth or in heaven. To live with Jesus. In verse 11, a fitting place to close. Therefore comfort each other and edify one another. Just as you also are doing. I know your life is tough. I know you bear some heavy burdens. But understand, the tribulation that you bear is nothing compared to the tribulation that will one day come upon this planet. Jesus is planning a surprise return. He's coming for His church. I hope you're rapture ready. Be alert. Be awake. Be sober. Be comforted. Your destiny is to live with Jesus. And you can start fulfilling that destiny today.